0: So we talked to Matt Rosenberg a while back on the Armstrong and Getty radio show, and we thought he was really, really damned interesting and thought we needed a longer conversation with him.
1: Yep. Pulitzer Prize winning journalist covers national security currently for The New York Times, spent 15 years as foreign correspondent in Asia, Africa, the Middle East. He was actually booted out of Afghanistan on the orders of President Hamid Karzai. Uh, has had a lot of really interesting experiences around the world, and it's a pleasure to talk to Matt Rosenberg.
0: So I got a really broad question right off the bat, and then we can just you know follow different uh, lines based on the answer. We, the United States, have tried. All these different things in a lot of countries that you've reported on over the years. We've we've tried killing a dictator and then leaving it to the people. We've tried overthrowing a country and trying to build a democracy. We've tried leaving it alone and letting them have elections. We've tried all these different things, none of which seem to have worked out that well for us. What do you think we ought to do?
2: Yeah, uh, that's that's a tough one. Yeah. You know, I mean, I'm sure we are, have 25 they, different countries that we want yeah, to follow up yeah, with ex- yeah, exactly ex- specifically. <laughs> sure, there are PhD theses being written about this right now. I mean, I, I'm going to just, I, I, I'm going to stay away from from, from projections of what we should do, and and just tell a little story about okay. um, when I was in Afghanistan right before I, I got tossed from the place. You know, they had an election in 2014. It was going to be the first election in which Hamid Karzai, who had been the president since you know, since the U.S. had kind of overthrown the Taliban, in which he was not going to be running. And so was now going to run Afghanistan? And I remember talking to a few of our Afghan reporters who worked in the bureau with us, and they were like, oh, the U.S. has to stay. They have to help us pick who's going to be the new leader. And I said to them, I said, guys, it, look around. You know, y'all hate Karzai at this point. Y'all hate the people who were kind of brought into power by the U.S., like why in the world would you want us picking more people? We seem to not be very good at this, and we seem to be—you know—we're not naked colonialists like the British and French were in the 19th century. So we're not just appointing, finding leaders who will who do whatever we want and and kind of rob their countries blind on behalf of us. We don't, but we don't really know these countries very well. I mean, I think you know, take Afghanistan for example. Probably a, a housewife who, who speaks to English and in Afghanistan probably doesn't read because the literacy rate among women is so low. She probably knows more about Afghans than we ever will, most of us ever will. And so we end up selecting leaders that tend to serve their own personal self-interest very well and not much else. They don't serve their people that well. They don't serve us very well. Um, I don't know how we kind of get around that. Uh, I just know that, you know, between South Asia and Africa and elsewhere in the world, the countries that seem to thrive are the ones that build themselves and that have a sense of themselves. So you look at India, India is a great example of that. India, 1947, India becomes independent, and it says it's not going to be a client state of the West. It's not going to be a client state of the Soviet Union. And, you know, India today is a thriving country. Pakistan, on the other hand, you know, right next door, they were the same independent state, Um, became a client state of the West, Pakistan is not a thriving country. I mean, there are a lot of variables in there, but there is some truth to that, too, that the Indians decided we are going to be our own country. We're going to be nobody's kind of uh, client, I guess. Nobody's going to tell us what to do. We're not going to have a master here. And it's worked out very well for them.
1: Well, I think I I get what you're saying, that with very, very few exceptions, countries have to go through the very difficult decades of finding themselves, sorting out who they are and how they're going to... Uh, hand yep. out power, and, and there's just no no imposing it from above.
2: And and I don't know how how we kind of like you know how we do that in a large parts of the world. I mean, Africa never got that chance because of European colonialism. Well, let's be honest about this: the, the the West, Europe, mostly drew the borders of Africa. There was never any kind of sorting out of countries the way you had in Europe and Asia. Um Europe spent a thousand years, two thousand years killing each other to get to where they are today. So uh you know I don't know, I'm not optimistic for countries that are struggling. It's 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 a really long and bloody road.
0: Well, should our bet just be whatever is best to try to counter Iran, as Iran wants to take over, you know, the whole, the whole Middle East, and they have been an enemy of the United States? I mean, we were counting on MBS to be on our side with that. Things have gone a little sideways there, but maybe he's still the horse to stick with. I don't know.
2: Yeah, I mean, the other question is, do, do we, does Iran need to be our enemy? I mean, I don't know, you know. Um there are a lot of countries that we kind of put into one camp or the other that could probably be a little more negotiable with, um, you know. And, and, and it's a tough call because countries are not going to do what we say. Um, and Iran certainly does a lot of things in the Middle East that that are that are definitely not in the U.S. interest. But you know, the Saudis aren't exactly doing great right now either, and you know, killing a journalist in, in, in a foreign consulate of theirs is. Just one of of many different things the Saudis have done that are making them into not a great bet right now. They've waged a brutal, terrible war in Yemen that even even the Secretary of Defense, of the U.S., has, has got to end. You know, so we keep relying on these kind of actors that are far from positive.
1: Right. Although within the region, I mean, you're presented with a series of unpalatable choices. And MBS, you know, well, let's talk about him a little bit. He has absolutely instituted a few uh, pleasant, some might say cosmetic reforms. You can take your best gal to the movies tonight if you want, um, but he, he snuffs journalists and consulates. Uh, what direction do you think he is planning to move Saudi Arabia? What's what's his act?
2: You know, it's, it's so hard to tell right now. Look, he clearly has a modernizing streak, and he clearly has a very deep authoritarian streak. It wasn't just the killing of Jamal Khashoggi. You know, he locked up uh, a big chunk of the country's elite, tortured some of them when he took power. He has consolidated power ruthlessly. Um, He is young; he's in his thirties, and you know there are a lot of people in their thirties who who might not make the most mature and best leaders of any country. And I don't know the guy; I've never met him, but you know, it's it's great loosening the restrictions on women but there have been a lot of other things that should give everyone pause.
1: Hey, do you think uh, uh, MBS, I, wanna, I I always want to call him MSB, then I start thinking of uh, what's on the Chinese food? <laughs> MSG. MSG, MSG Energy, and then I get confused. MSG. I'm sorry, I, I, I don't get enough sleep. But um, <laughs> do you think MSB admires Thomas Jefferson
2: more or Xi Jinping? Oh, God, I would have to go with the latter on that one. Right. Um, the man is clearly not a big advocate of democracy. Well,
1: yeah, the, the modernized totalitarian state, you don't have to look very hard to find examples of that. That's kind of hot.
2: Yeah, no, it, 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 it's hot these days. Look, over and over again, there are, in many different countries, these people come to power who kind of supplant, brutal dictators and are these kind of seen as benevolent despots of sorts. You know, in Uganda, you had Yari Museveni, who you had Idi Amin, and you had all kinds of violence and, and terrible rule. Then you get this guy who kind of stabilizes the place, and the place does well economically, and things are going up. But that eventually does not kind of last, and the benevolent despot eventually just becomes a despot, because you got to hold on to power. If you're an authoritarian or totalitarian state, at some point... Your whole claim to power is coercive over your own people. You're not going to allow dissent. You're not going to allow um, any kind of wiggle room because you can't. And so it's very easy to go from being, you know, the good guy who's kind of fixing the country and forming it to the person who now is holding on to power at all costs and oppressing their people. Yeah,
0: it's interesting. I always think about right after 9-11, I remember John McCain saying what we have here is the, 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 the end of time when it's a good idea for the United States to make deals with dictators. Those days are gone. And I thought at the time, I thought, yes, it's going to be the end of all these evil dictators in the Middle East. But then you see Mubarak go and the people vote for the Muslim Brotherhood or Qaddafi Falls, and then you just have mayhem or or, or what's going on in Syria. So I don't know what the right answer is now.
2: No, neither do I. Um, I mean, I'm kind of, the for many, many years overseas, I... I'm not quite sure we do as much good as we think we do in a lot of places. Um, I don't know how we do it better, um, but we can either often bring a heavy hand or when we decide to back certain people, we don't know particularly well who they are and we end up backing people who turn out to be nasty, nasty people. Um, And, you know, look, there are realists who would say, well, we should just do it in our self-interest and screw those other people. So if we need to support a dictator, we should support them. I don't know if that doesn't come back to to bite us in the, in the ass sometimes um, or often.
1: Well, yeah, I think it's pretty clear. And I consider myself a real realist in terms of foreign policy. But, yeah, if you nakedly and without subtlety pursue your own interest in the long term, that will go against your interests because everybody will hate you. Um, yeah. and, and on that note, let's go back to Afghanistan, where you
2: spent a great deal of time. How long were you there? God, I was, so I was there a little bit in like 2002, mm-hmm. um, I was based in, in East Africa at the time, just kind of helping out, and um, I was a young reporter at the Associated Press. And then between like tw- 2000, end of 2008 and 2014, kind of a big chunk of my time was spent in Afghanistan. In the last three years of that, about 70% of it.
1: Okay, so uh, t- true or no, how do you see it? We are engaged in a permanent... Um, semi-occupation of Afghanistan for the purpose of ensuring it doesn't fall into a, a, a Islamist hellhole, to have a balance against Iran in the region, to keep an eye on Pakistan. This isn't a war; it's an occupation.
2: Um, I would say true in the sense that after seventeen years, I don't know what else you call it. I, I don't think you know it's it's endless because it's we're not winning. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't think anybody envisions Afghanistan being a particularly good counterbalance to to anyone. It's a pretty weak country. Well, yeah, I Um, mean, our presence
1: there being a, a, hey, remember we're here. And
2: and it's definitely to keep the Taliban out of power. Um, You know, uh, the thing is, though, is that, like I said, we're not winning and nobody believes we are. It's, It's a death by a thousand cut situation at this point, but it is something that we are slowly kind of being chipped away at. And it's unclear, you know, what the end game here is, what we believe the final result is going to be. Because, look, the Trump administration will say now, well, you know, we hold on. We provide assistance and support to the to the to the Afghan army and the Afghan police. And eventually the Taliban will come to the table. That has been the strategy for like seven or eight years now. And it has yet to yield anything um, except some very, very, very beginnings of peace talks that have been beginning now for about six years. So. So I'm not really clear on how this is a new strategy or where this one's going.
0: Was Karzai a crook from the beginning, or did he just become a realist, or what went on there?
2: No, I mean, he. I, I'm not even clear if he personally was a crook ever. People around him definitely were, though. What Karzai was was somebody who needed to stay in power. So when he came to power, a whole network of kind of warlords and kind of big men and others – Came to power with him, his entire support network. A lot of those people were supported initially by us, by the CIA and others. And you know, early on in the Karzai presidency, that money that that we were using to pay off different warlords and various actors was then sort to be routed through Karzai. And then it just be, quickly became a situation where if you wanted to get any business done in the country. You know, anything you do, you had to go through the government. You had to go through somebody in power. You needed those connections. I think that's like the classic mark of a kleptocracy. Is you look, you know, we always had a deal in the U.S. Like you do your time in government, public service, or as an elected official, and um, and after you get out, you want to cash in. That's up to you. But in a cryptocracy is y- you are in power and you use your office to either enrich yourself or your friends and family. And for anybody to get any business done, they need your blessing because you control the kind of years of kind of getting the permits you need or whatever, you know. And that was what Afghanistan quickly became, where I remember a guy, a DEA guy, who was leading this big, this big task force to go after Taliban finances. You know, they start thinking in like 2009 when the kind of the surge was starting the war was kind of... Becoming our focus again, so they fire up this, this big task force, and the idea they're going to go after like Taliban, opium smuggling, and other ways the Taliban make money. So these guys they start they start listening on phone calls all over the country, and it's they quickly realize like uh oh, <laughs> like everybody's in business together. It's not just the Taliban. It's the government. It's people in the hawalas, which are these kind of informal money transfer networks that made up most of the financial network. It's it's the ten percent of the kind of financial system that works in the banks in Afghanistan, um, that everybody's interlinked. It's all kind of a giant criminal enterprise, and here we are in the middle of it kind of financing the whole thing. Um, you know, we built that. So whatever cars it became, we do bear some responsibility for that.
0: Every regular person on planet Earth has always wanted the same thing for the most part. You want to you want to raise your kids in a, in a safe place and and that's pretty much it but where of all the places you've been was the closest thing to like the 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 pure hobbesian nightmare of life is violent brutish short that whole thing where there just was no law and order
2: oh that had to have been like parts of eastern congo parts of uh, of sudan you know parts of somalia where you know they either in somalia you had no effective central government there just wasn't one and then in eastern Congo and parts of Sudan there just was the government had no authority over these places or was so distant that it could exercise no authority and that if your neighbor or the neighboring village wanted to come up and kill everyone in your village and they were stronger there was no real way to stop them um,
0: you know well wow, that's some caveman sort of stuff right there
2: yeah yeah I mean Africa is filled with incredibly weak states Countries that that can barely control their own borders, um, that are terribly corrupt, that you know, that they like I said in the beginning of this, like like I said, you know, these were countries that never got a chance to build themselves. Their borders were drawn by colonial powers. Some of them make absolutely no sense. Why they exist is 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 simply because of the diktats of of, of European bureaucrats in the 19th century. And as a result, you know they're 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 you know hobbled from the beginning and probably not getting any better anytime soon.
1: Well, you know that's interesting. As long as we're in an Africa and talking about that, and and as all of us are engaged in observing and discussing the growing tribalism in America and the partisanship the rest of it, what what does an American make of the fragility of civilization and the way people who look and sound and worship virtually the same, like the Hutus and the Tutsis in Rwanda? suddenly begin well not suddenly, but begin killing each other by the hundreds of thousands what What lesson do we take as humanity from that?
2: I mean so leadership counts you know people people don't i don't think I you know you, you don't blindly follow people but if if the messages you hear are frequent enough and loud enough to tell you that this other person is they're Hutu or they're Muslim or they're Jewish or whatever they are Tutsi, not hutu um are are somehow bad and need to go, um, that will become something that, that you will people will begin to act on. You know, and I think you see that here in the US when, you know, when you've got fringe elements moving to the mainstream and saying things about their rivals that are, you know, put them far beyond the pale of political rivals, that these people are enemies, that they are going to destroy our country, that they want to get elected to destroy your life. I mean, that's the kind of thing that tends to get people fired up. You know, and then you get the combination of of the idea that you may one day one day prosecute your political enemies or that if you get to power, you can get rich. You know, that's the kind of recipe you get where you start getting real election violence. because The stakes get very high very quickly.
0: God, you look at these places that are dysfunctional, like you're just talking about, and you wonder how they ever get organized. Uh, uh, we ever got organized as a as a species ever into uh, into nation states that can govern ourselves and have some sort of security and decent life. We jeez. God, dang it! We're so lucky that we've got it going here. I hope we don't blow it.
2: It's, it's pretty, it's pretty grim. I mean, it's one of those things where I think you know we are so we are so lucky. Like so many things broke right over the last two two hundred plus years of the United States, but none of this is inevitable. Like this can all go away. Sure. Um, this doesn't have to exist the way it does. I think we all kind of assume like, hey, it's great, you know. Um, but it's very easy to f- remember that that you know people aren't totally rational actors that, you know, people have prejudices, people have um, hang-ups, some people are prone to violence, and that if you get leadership that's willing to kind of indulge that, you start getting down a pretty dark path pretty quickly.
1: All right, let's head over to Russia. Vlad Putin is uh, gathering together his brain trust this afternoon, and, and he's saying, all right, uh, the America file, what is our purpose there? What is, what is Vlad Putin thinking about when he thinks about the U.S.?
2: So I had a really, really interesting conversation with a person in the intelligence world. They just retired. Like this is, would have been the last few months. And they were a very senior person dealt with Russia. And so we were talking, and apparently there was this big debate in American kind of spy circles. Everybody has figured out that, that Putin has hung on to Trump and is into Trump because he thinks Trump can produce some kind of grand bargain. That while the rest of the Russian government looks at what the U.S. is doing and sees actual policies out of the Trump administration that are pretty hostile to Russia, and says we're not going to get anything done with the U.S. Putin still believes Trump can deliver some kind of grand bargain, but the big debate is what is this grand bargain he wants? You know, and that they can't figure out. Is it over Crimea? Is it like spheres of influence? Crimea plus the Middle East, Ukraine. Nobody's entirely sure. Is it just respect? They don't really know, and until they can figure that one out, um, it's hard to say. Uh, the other problem the U.S. has right now in figuring this all out is that. Um, A lot of uh, human intelligence sources, at least, have have dried up because, look, if if you're looking at the news in the last two years and you were somehow... Providing intelligence to to the Americans, the CIA. Do you think you'd keep doing it? I mean, you'd probably shut up real quick mm-hmm. and start avoiding it. Because, you know, you've got congressional committees talking about releasing releasing the names of actual sources from the FBI and maybe even 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 the CIA. You've got just the news. I mean, if I were like sitting in the Kremlin as somebody who was being paid off by a CIA, got to slip occasional secrets, I'd take the money I had and probably quit while I was ahead.
1: Why? Why Putin don't play. Well, right. <laughs> Can you describe for folks who are not as hip to it as uh, you are, the whole program of just weakening your adversary by uh, stoking internal uh, rifts and that sort of thing? Uh, that's got quite a history, doesn't it, going back to the Soviet Union?
2: It, it really does. I mean, you know, the Soviet Union used to always try this kind of supporting different groups in America they thought were divisive, whether it was like civil rights groups that they thought, well, if we if we try and clandestinely support them, they'll divide America. Or right wing groups, you know, whenever they saw any kind of movement that had the ability to potentially divide the place, they would support it. But you know, in like the '60s, a little bit of cash here and there and helping somebody print a pamphlet is not exactly going to going to create total amount of upheaval. Uh, we now live in a world where. Um, Fake news and disinformation kind of moves a lot faster than we can keep up with it. And so the tools are now there to kind of do that What the Soviets would have called active measures, I guess. Um, Look, the other thing is Russia is a declining power. This is a country, its economy is pegged mostly to oil. It is it is population is shrinking fast. This is a country that is not going to be a major power probably in the next century will fall off. And so they're doing what they can. They've modernized their military, but another thing they've picked up is like this information warfare. This helps, you know, you can weaken the U.S. But, you know, there is one important thing here, which is none of this works if we're not divided ourselves. You know, if we were in a different spot and we weren't so divided amongst each other, a bunch of of secret Russian propaganda making it worse wouldn't have a lot of effect. It It only works because we're already kind of halfway there. Um, so that's, that's something to keep in mind. they
0: got a lot of nuclear missiles, so Russia's worth paying attention to on some level. And obviously yeah. we got China uh, uh, coming up to uh, challenge us as a global power. Do we spend way too much time worried about little sand countries in the Middle East?
2: I, it certainly feels like it sometimes. So I always, I always have this thinking feeling. So I went from, you know, I was based in Delhi and covered kind of all of South Asia. And then I kind of became our, our and this is when I stole the Wall Street Journal, our Afghanistan-Pakistan guy. And then I joined the Times. And, and I always have this sinking feeling that I've gone from kind of covering like India and, and then and China, of course, like their reassertion of their place in the global economic order as these enormous wealthy countries, kind of like, like the rise of maritime Europe in the 1500s. You know, this, this reshapes the arc of history. And this is the kind of thing there will be whole textbooks written about and kids will learn about in grade school, whereas the war in Afghanistan felt like the Boer War was to the British Empire. Right, right. Um, A little war in Southern Africa that kind of sorted itself out and that's that. I guess that's how we ended up with South Africa. But, you know, it didn't feel like, you know, something that was momentous. And so, yeah, I think there's certainly a case, maybe the Obama administration tried to do it, or at least they made lip service about doing it, about their pivot to Asia, Mm -hmm. that we were spending way too much time on countries that ultimately, you know, weren't hugely important to us. Um, you know, one other important distinction I think between Russia and China because there's, there's, it's easy to conflate what the two are doing. Um, but this this a few intelligence people and other kind of strategist types of people who pointed this out to me. Like the Chinese are seen as playing the game, so if they're listening to the president's phone calls, it's for espionage purposes. It's the kind of thing we do too, you know. And that's it's all in the game. You got to live with it. What the Russians are seen doing is trying to kind of do that espionage and then use what they're learning. To kind of screw with the actual institutions of our democracy and undermine them and and that's seen as kind of a step much further and an aggressive step, so if the Chinese are using the information and then trying to hearing say they hear the president talking on this phone call, then they go to somebody and who knows somebody who's on that phone with the president and try and get them to kind of suggest pro china policies that's using our system for their own good. And the U.S. is kind of okay with that. They don't love it, but they got to live with it. Whereas, you know, the Russians coming in and trying to undermine the actual elections, that's seen as trying to break the system.
1: You know, to that, uh, you mentioned the, the phone call thing, which you wrote about uh, in the New York Times. Oh, uh, By the way, I heard the president mention that the New York Times is failing. I'm so sorry to hear that. That's, it's got to be very disappointing. Every
2: time he does that, we get more subscribers, so I would really encourage you, please, please keep doing it. But So listen, um,
1: you, you as a journalist these days, working for the New York Times, um, you have a lot of people who want your ear, I would imagine. And a lot of people within the administration, maybe within, well, the administration broadly, say, within the State Department. Joe's
0: asking, who, who wrote the anonymous column? Who, <laughs> are you kidding? That seems no, like 50 I, years ago. I, I don't I care. Tell
1: you, but then I'd have to kill you all. So. Yeah, that's fine. Some days I'd yeah. welcome it. No, but anyway, so uh, how uh, – this is a journalism question. How difficult is it when you get a pretty well-placed source, you get the sense they got an ax to grind – It sounds juicy, but it sounds kind of office gossipy. What's that process like? Working through that, deciding whether to uh, print it.
2: All right. First of all, when you when you get a well placed source of an axe to grind, it's like thank God, like (laughs) this is great. (laughs) Number one, because they're going to talk. That's always a good start. And then you know you you look at what they say, and there are some things people say. You're like this this is highly improbable, or you ask yourself, well, would they know this? And if the answer is yes, they okay, we've got to find some other people who know it too. And you will find people who are then probably have less of an axe to grind or no axe to grind who know it and will help confirm it. So you get and the then, friend
1: of a friend source pretty frequently, huh?
2: Yeah. Uh, huh. And, you know, it's why when we, use it, when we use anonymous sources, which, look, I hate it, and I think for readers, I think most of them don't like it either. Unfortunately, in national security reporting, you got to do it. There's almost no way not to do it because so much stuff is either classified or restricted, and people will either lose their jobs or go to prison for talking to you. So you you just can't get around it. Um, and so, but when we do that, we don't rely on single sources for stories. You know, somebody comes to me and asks Ryan and tells me something that they absolutely have access to, and absolutely sounds accurate, that's not good enough, you know, because it's one source and it's anonymous. We're going to do a lot of sourcing, a lot of multiple sources on that, especially if it's a truly incendiary story, you know, that's just going to raise the bar even higher. Interesting. Um, how much damage but, but, oh, wait, does it do? That said, that's what I like to say a message to anybody in the government. Um, don't be intimidated. We always want more sources. Don't think what you've got is too minor. Please give us a call.
0: You ever get stuff you think <laughs> people shouldn't know this? People don't need to know this. Um, are yeah, you a yeah, uh all the information we deserve all the information into democracy sort of guy uh, I,
2: so i'm i'm gonna kind of I, I think i'll start with the benefit of the doubt like it, it all should be public and work backwards from there and yeah. like, we have definitely held stories um or held information out of the paper either at the request of of the government which has made a very good case that was not political about why this was important to keep to maintain a secret or you know If it's an identity of somebody it's going to get them killed, something like that, you know, that's something that we don't want to do. And so if we know the name of somebody and putting it in the newspaper is going to lead to their death, then we're not going to do that. you know. And We're going to have a real conversation about that. And on the other hand, like, look, I just said the thing about keeping information out of the paper. You know, More often than not, we will have the CIA or the White House or whatever try and tell us, well, this thing is really secret. If you do this, it's going to ruin national security. And those arguments are usually overtly political and ignored. But there have been moments where they've commented, look, you know, this is an active program. If you do this, it's going to undermine it. And... We don't like, you know, that kind of thing outweighs the news value of it.
1: Well, and there are some hints as to who a source might be or how a program operates that to the untrained, I wouldn't mean much. But uh, if you are, for instance, in the, you know, Russian, uh, the modern equivalent of the KGB and you're trying to figure out who's spilling secrets, man, a tiny little clue might be enough. So you do have to be careful with that stuff.
2: We do. I, I mean, I think we also have to be realistic. Like, if we have figured it out, there aren't that many of us who cover this stuff at the Times. So if we have figured it out, let's assume that foreign spy services with lots of people probably figure it out, too.
1: Yeah, okay, fair enough. So uh, who did you really admire as a journalist, writer, opinion writer? Any, any heroes as a young lad?
2: As a young lad, I don't know. I mean, I know now I look at some of the, the people I've either worked with or seen their work, you know, um, my former colleague, Jim Risen, was amazing, mm. is an amazing journalist. Um, uh, Cy Hirsch, you know, despite his more recent issues, I mean, this is a guy who dug up information that that led to a huge amount of reform. Like there's actual congressional oversight of the CIA and the NSA and others to the work that this one guy did. And that's yeah. pretty amazing. You know, that's an amazing impact. Um, you know, and I think. Part of me, I just appreciate people who, as they get older, don't decide, well, I'm going to be part of the establishment now, who keep throwing bombs. Right. Because, I mean, like, look, if I wanted to be part of the government, I would have joined the government. You know, if I wanted to throw spitballs, I became a journalist. So I don't see why that should be different at 55 um, or 25, you know, 25 or 55.
0: You mentioned, uh, yeah. you mentioned the CIA and, and, you know, they push back against if you want to print a story and all that sort of stuff. Do, um, do those kind of institutions change much? Administration to administration, or do they? Does the CIA tend to be the CIA whether it's under Bush or Obama? And we'll leave Trump out of it because people get so worked up anytime you talk about Trump. But like, they is change, Bush they,
2: yeah. is Bush's CIA
0: going to be think. the same as Obama's CIA, and that they're going to protect the CIA?
2: Yeah, they're going to protect the CIA. I mean, the difference is is like, look, they're going to work for the guy who's the president. So um, whoever that is, they may change a bit, but they don't. I mean, the institutions are are set up like look we we have set up a tremendous amount of institutions to be kind of perpetual as a as somewhat a safeguard. You know, we cede power to them away from elected representatives and it provides continuity. Well, the CIA is not gonna go out and start doing crazy different things just because Trump is president. They're gonna start spying on Americans, for instance, they can't do that. There are laws against that. Um, I think, you know, they might be pretty happy over the CIA that Trump has, has loosened some of the restrictions on what they can do. I mean, there are certainly people there who are very happy. There are plenty of other people who are totally unhappy that they think he he is, has, you know, come in and said terrible things and undermined America's position in the world and made their jobs harder. Um, but it remains the CIA. I
0: always ask people like you, and this is my final question, um, that that have, you know, a privy to information that not all the, not all the rest of us are. Plus, you stared at it every single day. Is the average American citizen got a pretty good idea how scary the world is, or are we way off base, based on what you know?
2: <laughs> you know, I don't know. Um, I, and so I think the average American probably has, is more afraid of the world than they should be and doesn't realize what they should be afraid of. Often. Interesting. And that's not—it's not—it's not because, um, not because they are ignorant or stupid. It's just because like, you know you live in this very big country. You, you don't have to interact with the rest of the world very often if you're the average American. And you're pretty secure. You know, you know you can go to bed at night without somebody coming and kick down your door, steal your stuff or whatever. And that's a great thing. Like, I think it's... it's,
0: it's we it's, underappreciate uh, that. Oh, please. Uh, in America, God, yeah, we really do. Thinking, oh, hell I mean, yeah. Most of the world, most of human history everywhere on the planet has had to go to bed every night worried somebody's going to come in and, and kill them yeah. and their kids.
2: Huh. no it's great and and i think we we i think it's it i actually think it's a good thing like our ignorance is a sign of our prosperity and success in some ways um i mean it, it, we should all strive to be less ignorant all the time And I even know that you know the one thing I learned. I spent 15 years living around the world. Is is how little I know about it. You know, I go to these places and I think I know something, but it's like I said. uh, You know, a housewife in Congo or Afghanistan or wherever knows more about her own kind of part of the world than I ever will, or any foreigner probably will. Um, But you know, so yeah. But but because but because we know so little, we're very easy to scare about the rest of the world. You know, whether it's a migrant caravan. Of a few thousand people who are a thousand miles away and you know there's a big chunk of the country believes these guys are coming to kind of overrun the country or you know it's a small small group of militants in the mountains of pakistan and afghanistan who did launch a very successful attack september 11th and have launched other attacks but but really do not pose any kind of existential threat to us
0: i'm mostly afraid of shark attacks and killer clowns so do i have it about right <clears throat> yeah start. no
2: me too um <laughs> I, and I'm, I'm 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 afraid of airplanes too i can't stand them. but i always figure the most dangerous thing we all did was drive you know oh yeah, drive oh yeah every day oh hey man, yeah. that. or just crossing the street i mean that's how you get killed you know it's not it's not in a terrorist attack so listen or, matt because shark attack
1: because of a lot of our uh, listeners swing conservative and i can hear him yeah. yelling at the podcast also got to point out the idea that trump is the new hitler or women are going to be uh, forced to breed Or he'll be an autocrat Is ridiculous It's yes, laughable it He couldn't get a quarter of the way to first base um, yes. it, And become I, an autocrat
2: Look, I mean uh, I, I, there's Trump derangement syndrome is definitely a thing um, And I think, you know You've seen it in the last few years here it's, it's on the right and left You've got to kind of fringe ideas move into the middle, you know, and making that space where everybody can kind of chat and disagree, but kind of agree to kind of work together among their disagreements has made that much smaller. But I mean, Trump is what he is. You know, he's got his many flaws, but a new Hitler is a pretty big stretch.
0: We talked to PJ O'Rourke a couple of weeks ago and he said, whose idea was it to make it so all the stupid people could talk to each other?
2: (laughs) He was talking about the internet. It's 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 definitely not a good thing. You know, I, I would prefer a president who who after a tragedy gets up and talks about the tragedy. And I would include Obama, Bush, Clinton, Bush, Reagan, all of them in that group. You know, over a president who doesn't. Um, and so, you know, there's definitely things you want different. But, I mean, new Hitler is – nobody's a new Hitler until they're a new Hitler, and we're far from that point. Yeah,
1: amen to that. Matthew Rosenberg. Hey, uh, Matt, it's great to talk to you. I hope it uh, won't be the last time, and, and and let's stay in touch. Well done.
2: Excellent. Thanks, guys.
1: Our pleasure. Thank you.
0: Good stuff. Um, God dang it. If you want to be thankful for anything on a, on a on a daily basis or thank your blessings, if you were born in the United States or you now live in the United States, that 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 should be at the top of your. That should be one through ten at the top of your list. Oh, yeah,
1: well, and as we've discussed, that if you are safe and prosperous, you invent things to be worried about. Sure, because your brain has that big part of it that's dedicated to warning you about stuff, and if there's little to warn you about other than you know the guy looking at his cell phone in the next lane as you're driving. Um, I'm worried about uh, yeah, I killer, to... k-
0: killer clowns riding sharks toward me.
1: Imagine the uh, the horror of that coming out of the edge of the woods.
0: But some of those African places he's talking about where there's just no law. Oh, yeah. You'd be fighting for your life every single day trying to keep you and your family pr- protected. Oh, my
1: God. Uh, being fully aware that much of Africa is desert and or savanna, it is the law of the jungle in that the strong will win the day, period. There's no such thing as, as, as That's as not good for justice me. Or I'm whatever. weedy. Yeah, well, run for cover, find some strong friends, or...
0: Maybe I could amuse people, you know, like a court jester type.
1: Well, I would amuse them for firearms and accumulate as many firearms and as much ammunition as He's you can. He's a tough
0: guy with a machete. He keeps me around because I amuse him. <laughs>
1: it's good work if you can get it, court jester. <laughs> hey, uh, you know, one thing I did want to point out, again, for our uh, listeners of a more conservative stripe. Matthew Rosenberg, he, he works for the New York Times. He's written some stories I'm fairly critical of, Um and or the white house denied outright and i don't know what to think and all and a lot of you want us to argue with a guy like matt about you know the new york times and bias and the rest of it and and we could but i think that would be so predictable and it would go nowhere i'm much more interested in hearing what he has seen and learned in his years around um you know, Asia, Africa, the Middle East as a foreign correspondent. I, don't really, I just think that's a more interesting conversation. I don't
0: really want to trade my life with anybody, but I'd I'd like to have, you know, done a little of what he's done, be in some of these places around the world. See, yes. See it instead of just read about it.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I would agree.
0: Wouldn't be always it wouldn't always be pleasant, I'm sure.
1: No, plenty of sacrifices in that line of work.
0: Well, and you'd see some god awful things you'd never forget. Yes. Yes you would.
1: Anyway. Next no, time I'm we'll talk sure to you know.
0: Next time let's talk to Phoebe from Friends. That's what I keep saying.
1: Way hey, we tried that once. <laughs> <laughs> That's
0: right. It didn't work out very well, did it? You oh, maybe if we had a longer time to stretch out and really talk to her. Do really it. get into it So you Joey do it. Was he stupid or Joey was stupid, yes. Anyway, see you next time.